Now as we begin this evening and we look at Psalm 42, I want to begin just by asking a simple question. You haven't got to answer this out loud. In fact, I would encourage you not to answer this question out loud. But as we begin this evening, I want to ask, do you talk to yourself? I wonder, do you talk to yourself? Now don't be alarmed. I'm not trying to report you to anyone. I'm not trying to get you into any sort of trouble. Uh, I've been on a, a theological training course the past week, and um, for part of the course, there was a, a forensic psychologist. And when we were sitting uh, at his table for mealtime, we were constantly worried he was going to diagnose us with something. We were constantly worried he was analysing every word we said. So don't be worried, I'm not going to do that. But I wonder whether we as Christians think enough about our internal monologues, how we think. Very often in the Christian life, we'll talk about what we should do, how should we act, how we should treat people, how we should share and tell people of the gospel. But I wonder how often we stop and consider how much do our minds and our thoughts glorify God? This morning, some of you would have had a battle in your minds. When your alarm clock went off, many of you would have had that wrestle in your mind going, well, I, I, I could wait another five minutes. I could hit snooze. I, I could stay in bed a little bit longer. I could be a little bit late. And for some of us, it was an internal struggle to just get up and wake up in the morning. All of us are constantly thinking all of us are constantly talking to ourselves in that sense. And when we come to Psalm 42, I want us to consider this almost as a public internal monologue. And I want this to encourage us in how do we live as Christians? How do we think through some of these big themes as believers? Now, you will sit under the word at church I know that for a fact because you're here and you are. You might come to the, the midweek Bible studies. You might watch sermons online. You might pray in your own daily devotional life. You might read the Bible on your own. You might have uh, pastoral visits from some of the elders or other members of the church. But the reality is there is nobody you spend more time with than yourself. Now, for some of us, myself included, that is a horrifying thought. That is a scary thought. But the person we spend most of our time with is us. And the point I'm trying to get at this evening is, if we are only cheering God exalted and proclaimed in church, in our devotional time, when we see other Christians, we are missing most of our life. In our minds, my encouragement is, preach to yourself. Talk to yourself. Remind yourself of who our Saviour is. Now in Psalm 42, we find here a great message about how the psalmist in great difficulty proclaims truth about who the Lord is. He reminds himself of God's goodness of God's character, 
of God's attributes. And my hope is this evening that we will learn a lot uh, from the psalmist and we will be able to emulate it in our own Christian lives. I must say, just before we, we begin and we get firmly into the text, I have seen a lot of sermons on this passage that really sort of romanticize the opening of it. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. And I've heard many sermons saying, oh, isn't it lovely? Isn't it wonderful? You can imagine it on a big portrait and a lovely painting of a, a nice deer bending their neck on some lovely flowing, trickling water. But I think the problem is we have romanticized something that isn't a beautiful picture. This isn't a, a lovely deer having a lovely drink. The, the message of Psalm 42 is desperation. It is struggle. It is difficulty. If this deer does not drink, this deer perishes. This isn't a lovely, romantic, picturesque scene or imagery. This deer is panting. This deer is desperate. This deer needs water or it will die. We don't know why. Maybe the deer has fled from um, predators. Maybe there's been a, a drought or a, ge a geological uh, disaster that has meant there's no rain or no water. And here we see an animal that is desperate, panting after water. Now, just by looking at me, you will be able to tell that I have got the body of a sportsman. Providing that sport is chess, I would agree with you. I... I uh, don't do that much physical exercise now, but it might surprise you to learn that when I was younger, I used to do a bit of cross-country. And then I agreed to never run again. But when I was younger, I used to do quite a lot of cross-country. And as I was running to the finish line, after running for what seemed like days, years, months upon months, you could see the finish line. My eye wasn't on the gold medals. They'd already been given out to the people who'd finished the race. My eyes weren't on my parents who were there. My eyes weren't on the crowds who were cheering. The one thing my eyes were on was the person holding the bottle of water that I could drink at the end of the race. After hours of running and running, the only thing I wanted was a drink. I was desperate for it. I'm very aware it is incredibly hot this evening, and maybe we understand a little bit more today what that's like. He was, I was desperate for a drink. And so this is the image of the opening of the psalm. Desperate. And my first point, I'm going to be very brief on my first point, because my first point is the, the context of the psalm. And the context of the psalm is disaster. And the reason I'm going to be very brief on this is because I'm sure we all know disaster. I don't need to explain to you how hard life is, do I? I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are. I'm sure you know life is not easy. It can be difficult. It can be hard. And what we see here is that the psalmist is in great distress. The psalmist is struggling. 
Now, uh, Psalm 42 is written by uh, the sons of Korah. And the sons of Korah, it's mentioned in um, 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 20. And there it talks about how the sons of Korah would lead the musical and sun worship of Israel. And many people have thought that actually the psalmist writing this psalm wants to be in Jerusalem, where the praise is, where the singing is, but he's not. And verse 6 gives us an indication of, of where he now is. He wants to be where God's people is, where the worship is, but he isn't. He's cut off from them. And these are just uh, some of the, uh, the negative language that the psalmist uses. This is not a momentary blip. This is a very real struggle. Verse 3 says, My tears have been my food day and night. What does that mean? He's been crying from the, he's been crying in the day, he's been crying until night. He's under great pressure and stress. Verse 5 says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Verse 5 also says, why are you in turmoil within me? I think the NIV uses the word, why are you disturbed? This is a man who is struggling. The end of verse 7 says, all your breakers and waves have gone over me. He, he almost is suggesting he feels like he's drowning. Life is so hard. Life is so difficult. He feels like these waves are battering over him. And he's drowning. And he can't cope. And he's struggling. I'm sure many of us have felt like that at points, haven't we? When life gets that difficult. When a surprise pops out of nowhere and flattens us. This is why I love the Psalms, because they speak into where we are now. And if your life at the moment is going great, well, hold on to Psalm 42 for when trials and distress does come. But this is the context of the Psalm. And even worse, he's got people coming up to him and saying, where is your God? Where's God? In your pain, in your struggle, in your difficulty, where is this God that you worship? There's mocking, there's distress, there's disaster. That's the first thing. It does get more pleasant from here. Because the second thing I want to mention is that this context to the psalmist doesn't cause him to be overwhelmed by despair. The pain and the misery that he feels drives him to God. This pain, this difficulty, this hardship, this pressure drives him to his God. And it should be a, a lesson for us that when difficulties come upon us, might they push us closer to a relationship with our God. This one says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. The psalmist is wanting and desiring a real encounter with God. He wants to know the presence of God. He wants to have communion with God. We have to be very careful that the trials in our life don't snatch us away from God. Don't dampen the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. 
when some of you go back to school, I think this is a huge encouragement that if it is hard and difficult and a struggle, it's okay. Don't let those things push you down. But in those moments, you can run to your God. You can be reminded of who Jesus is. The psalmist is after this this presence with him, this communion with God, this support and help. And the challenge is for me, and I'm going to say it, and therefore it will be a challenge for you as well. The psalmist here is panting after God. Verse 2 says he's thirsting after God. When was the last time we could describe in our spiritual lives that we panted after God? That our souls were longing to know him more, to experience him more, to have a closer walk with him. When was the last time we can say that we genuinely felt an experience of, of longing to know him more? It's a real challenge, isn't it? When was the last time we felt thirsty to know God's word? Now, you're all here in this church building or watching online, and I wonder why that is. Is it because it's Sunday evening and you've got nothing better to do? Is it because it's Sunday evening and that's just where we go? Or is the reason why we're here because we feel like it is a necessity to meet with God? Do we understand the reality that we need him? That there's no escaping him? As uh, always, Charles Spurgeon says, exactly what I want to say, but better. I can't get my words out, but Charles Spurgeon has written this, and I think it's really helpful. Speaking of the psalmist, Spurgeon says, ease of life he did not seek. Honour. He did not want. But the enjoyment of communion with God was an urgent need for his soul. He viewed it not merely as the sweetest of all luxuries, but as an absolute necessity. What Charles Spurgeon is saying here is he he didn't just see it as, oh, that's nice. Oh, I'll go to church and it's lovely. It's nice for a bit and then I'll go home and do what I really want. What he's saying here is it is a necessity. Your time with God is a must. And so as you live your Christian lives, think about him. Dwell on him. When you read your your Bibles, and if you don't, I encourage you to read your Bibles and then to think about them. Oh, that the, the words of life might fill us. Oh, that in our thinking we consider Jesus Christ not just in church, Did you know we could do that? Did you know we can think about Jesus outside of church? It's brilliant. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, might your minds be filled with Jesus Christ. As the old hymn goes, I want you every hour, every hour I want you. That's not what the hymn says at all, is it? It doesn't say I want God, it says I need thee every hour. Hour. Every hour I need thee. It's to be an encouragement to us that in good times and in bad times, oh, might we be exalting Christ 
by how we think about him, by how we meditate on his words. Oh, might we be driven to God. Verse 2 says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist here talks about thirsting. And uh, I, I don't think we as people who live in the West understand this concept at all. We think being thirsty is being half an hour into a church service and uh, not having any tea and biscuits. Some of us might think, I am so thirsty, I haven't had a drink for, for half an hour, but I'm so thirsty. When the psalmist was writing, and I think people who live outside of the Western world get this a lot more, the psalmist was writing before taps existed. The psalmist was existed before water was accessible. And if I can put it as, as blunt as this, if it didn't rain, often you didn't drink. If the well dried up, you had no source of water. If the water that you used became contaminated, you had no water. When the psalmist talks about thirsting, he means it in a very literal sense. It is my life. I need you as if it was my sustaining substance. Friends, I encourage you to think about God in these terms. Think about God for who he is, a sustainer. Think about God for who he is. He is life. I love, again, it's an old hymn that says, He is more than life to me, and the fairest of 10,000. Our vision and view of Jesus should be bigger and bigger and bigger. However, the psalmist specifies that he is thirsting after God. He doesn't just want to be around other Christians. He doesn't just want people to be nicer to him where he is. What the psalmist really wants is a real, powerful encounter with God. What he wants is God's strength, God's help, God's support, God's presence. And the reality is, I, I would say that everybody in this world is thirsting after something. Whether it be fame, whether, whether it be relaxation, whether it be retirement, whether it be good health. People are always longing after something. And the psalmist here reminds us that, friends, there is nothing better to long for. There is nothing more needed than you to know God himself. For nothing compares to him. For nothing is like him. But we are also New Testament believers. And the New Testament uh, says in John 7, verse 38, it reminds us, these are the words of Jesus. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We thirst after God. And this illustration of uh, drinking and water is used throughout the Old and the New Testament. Very familiar words in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will be in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. They will never be thirsty again. There's a a great hymn, uh, Jesus Strong and Kind. I don't know if you know it. I recommend you go and listen to it. If you don't, we sang it on camp. And Jesus Strong and Kind opens by saying, Jesus says that if I thirst, I should come to him. No one else can satisfy, I should come to him. Friends, there are so many people in this world looking for satisfaction in the wrong things. And my encouragement to you is, go to God. Good times, let them drive you to God. Bad times, let them drive you to God. There is no better place to be than in the presence of the Almighty God. And then my final thought picks up on how the psalmist, in his own mind, focuses on God. There's been great trials and difficulties. They forced him to go to God because there's no one else there. No one else left. And now what the psalmist does is reminds himself of who God is. I think this is vital. This is real application for our lives. Because so easy you forget. As the old hymn says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We can feel that in our hearts, can't we? I encourage you, talk to yourselves. I recommend doing it quietly and internally rather than out loud in a supermarket. But talk to yourselves. Remind yourself of who he is. Think about him. Reflect on him. My final point is divine attributes. Now that sounds really fancy, but that's only because I needed uh, another D for alliteration. What I mean by divine attributes is basically remind yourself of who God is. Think about his character. Think about his goodness to you. And this is exactly what uh, the psalmist in Psalm 42 does. Verse 2 says, My soul thirsts for God for the living God. This is what the psalmist concludes, and you will be pleased to know I'm not going to go through the whole psalm, because we're only on verse 2. But throughout the psalm, there are several examples where the psalmist reminds himself. Maybe when you go home this evening, you can read through Psalm 42 and, and pick up these little things that he says. He talks about his steadfast love. He talks about this, he talks about that. He's reminding himself In the midst of all this evil and difficulty I can see, I know who my God is. I know where my salvation comes from. I know who my Saviour is. And so I encourage you to remind yourself. And the first thing that the psalmist reminds himself of is that God is a living God. And I've got a few things that I want to pick up on here just to close What does it mean for God to be the living God? The first thing it means is that God is living in a sense that he is outside of everything else. 
He doesn't need any sustaining or help from anyone else. God lives beyond anyone and everything else. Now, I was on a, uh, a week away, and there were a lot of babies everywhere. And it amazes me that babies can't do anything. The only thing they can do is cry and keep you up at night. That's what I've learned from uh, a few people who had recently, uh, recently become parents. It's amazing. When you think about what children can do, babies can't even sit up. They need to be lifted up. When we say that God is the living God, we do not mean anything like that. We mean God is self-sufficient. He is all in all. He needs nothing. He needs no one. The, the triune God who dwells together in perfect unity with himself needs nothing to support himself. Needs nothing to sustain himself. Our God is the living God. This also separates God from everything else. Because what is the difference between the almighty God and the golden calf? There's lots of different answers to this, lots of different correct answers. But surely one of the biggest answers is, my God lives. The golden calf does not live. The idols of uh, the psalmist's day were not alive. To declare that God is the living God is to declare he is the only true and real God. For every other God is either dead or has never existed. But our God lives. What a thing to reflect on. The second thing we can draw from this statement is that really when we come to it, all life exists because God has given it. God is the living God who gives life. That all life that we have, all life that we see, everything we have and see is alive because the God of life has made it so. He is not just a living God in his own entity. He is not just a living God because he exists and other false gods and idols don't exist. He is the God of life and he gives us life. Every breath we take, we acknowledge, is from him. Everything is in his hands. Everything is in his control. What a thing to meditate and to think upon. But we are New Testament believers. And uh, we sang a bit of scripture. The, uh, the first hymn we sang is taken from uh, Revelation 1 and verse 17. As New Testament believers, we know that our living eternal God is the God who died for us. This God who is life came down to this world and gave up his life upon a cross in order that we might be forgiven. And this is what Revelation 17 says, Fear not. What a beautiful start. Fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. This is our living God. The God who is 
forever. The God who has no beginning and no end. The Alpha, the Omega, the Almighty. And this is what the psalmist must be clearly doing in his mind. is reflecting on what he knows about God. The truth about God. And we as New Testament believers have had uh, more divine revelation. We have more of the scriptures to think about who God is. I encourage you, never take your minds of who Jesus Christ is. Think about him in your daily lives. But I want to touch upon the end of the psalm, just uh, in the few moments that I've got left. And I'll, I'll do it in an unusual way, but bear with me. This isn't a rant. I hope this will be relevant. But I hate happy endings. I really don't like happy endings. You know, you'll be watching a film or reading a book, and uh, there'll be a couple. They fall in love. No. Oh. They have a row. They always have a row. It's to make sure the book and the film runs on a bit. They have a row, and then lo and behold, they come back together again. And then, you know the scene, they walk off hand in hand, into the sunset, and you go, isn't that lovely? Happily ever after. I'm always left thinking, they'll never be able to afford a mortgage on his salary. <laughs> they're going to have great problems when, uh, when his parents find out that they're together. They're going to really struggle later on in life. They're going to have rows, they're going to have ups, they're going to have downs. And I hate happy endings because they're so superficial. It's almost like you click your fingers and you, you wrap up and you just end it with something happy. What I love about the truth of Scripture is that it is not like the fiction of today. The reality of the Scripture is that in some instances, God wonderfully and beautifully delivers. And in some instances, He doesn't. The end of Psalm 8 uh, of Psalm 42, verse 11, reads, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He's repeating this from verse 5. In the middle of the psalm to the end of the psalm, nothing has changed. His material situations are still the same. He's still not where he wants to be. People are still mocking him and making fun of him. Nothing has changed. But at the same time, everything has changed. Because his material circumstances have not changed, they've not altered. But at the same time, one commentator says, faith gets the final word. You know in an argument where two people both want the final word. And the argument it keeps on going because one person wants to be the person who says the last thing. I don't know why. But almost what we see in Psalm 42 is the last word is faith. His material circumstances have not changed, but that doesn't matter because his mindset has changed. From the beginning of the psalm, when he is thirsting after God, even though nothing has changed materially, he's been thinking of God. He's been praying for this encounter with God. And he ends the psalm by saying, hope in God. 
His circumstance is the same. It's a struggle. It's difficult. But he says, hope in God. Friends, you might be going through a dark and difficult time and God might not uh, deliver you from it instantly. You might continue to live a hard and difficult time. But if our eyes are focused on him, if we are exalting Jesus Christ in our lives day by day, nothing changes, but everything has changed. For our mindsets have changed. For we are spiritually renewed. Friends, talk to yourselves. Speak of Jesus Christ to yourself. Remind you who he is. The end of verse 11. My salvation and my God. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ today, he is your salvation. He is your God. I'll end with a quote from Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry says, The way to forget your miseries is to remember the God of our mercies. The way to forget your miseries is to remember the God of your mercies. Talk to yourselves, friends. Preach to yourselves. Remind yourselves, wherever you are, whatever you're facing, has Jesus Christ left you? Has he abandoned you? Has he forsaken you? No. He is always the great living God. And my hope and my prayer is that all of us would thirst after him, would pant after him, and we would know him more.